On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with our friend Dr. Alex DeBrima about race, racism, and social activism. This is a unique episode for us as we invite you into a conversation on a radically toxic topic oftentimes. So wherever you land, we want to invite you to think and stretch yourself, and we invite you to friendship. We want nothing to do with vain speculation. We want nothing to do with making confident assertions about what we don't understand. We want nothing to do with fracturing friendships. The aim of this episode is love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. So wherein you disagree, we hope it promotes fruitful and shareable dialogue. And wherein we turn out to be wrong, we hope we're open to reason. Regardless of what you think about the episode, we invite you as friends to listen in and discuss something that is truly important and is truly impacting all of us. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, you can hit us up Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or you can check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I am one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your co-host, Brandon Askew. And we're a podcast that's devoted to thinking, and we want to think well. So in an effort to promote thinking well, we've, we've endeavored to try to create an intellectual culture that is full of charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. And I think those virtues are going to be of paramount importance for the conversation that we have today with our friend and brother, Dr. Alex. I guess you are Dr. Alex DePrima now, aren't you? Uh, I am. Yeah. Uh, probably the last time I was on with you guys, I don't think I was, uh, I had been donned. But, uh, yeah, but so yeah. officially titled Doctor now. And Alex has been on the show before we talked Spurgeon and uh, social activism. I think that was the primary focus of your dissertation. Mm -hmm. That's right. Well, now Alex has been doing, I think, a lot of reading and a lot of research and some teaching at his own church on just examining uh, race, social justice and activism, all those types of things. And we're not going to this episode is not designed to tell you what to think. And I think you've you've gathered that from most of our episodes. I mean, we have all types of different uh, thinkers come on, and the goal is to help you think well. So, in that effort, we we're the goal of this episode is to just historically look at some precursors to this, and say Martin Luther King Jr. and Spurgeon, where he's relevant, and then compare and contrast that to some more contemporary modern thinking on race, on racism, on social activism, social justice, all those things. So I view this more as a conversation and just trying to understand what people are actually saying. And it's so it's more descriptive than is it is prescriptive. I think all three of us have opinions on these things. And uh, I'm going to attempt not to tell you what to think. Though, I mean, if you get what we think, that's fine. <laughs> I mean, I, I think you've listened to us long enough, if you're a regular listener, to know that we are friendly to everybody and everybody can be our friends. So whatever you think about this, we want to be your friend. And this is totally, well, it's not completely off topic, but I was reading Martin Luther King Jr. And one of the comments that I did see come up and up and up and up over and over again, which I think is just tremendous, is that his goal was not to... Uh, I guess, dehumanize or to, to, I don't, that was not the term he used, but to just, his goal is not to attack the white man, but to build friendships, to build a brotherhood, to build mm. a community. 
And I really do believe in the power of friendship for discussions like this that are so volatile and so um, full of tension and, and that have seemed to break friendships is that in order to have good, healthy discussions on topics like this, I mean, besides the healing power of the gospel, I think friendship is number two. Hmm. The, the deeper friendships you have, um, the more you're able to actually talk about these things in helpful, charitable, correct ways. So in, in that vein, I hope everybody's listening, whether you agree with us or not, know that w- we want to build friendships. We want to build bridges. So hopefully you can hear this conversation in that tone, uh, though we're not going to like try to hide or anything like that. So we're not going to just like fake, but we're going to talk about it as descriptively as possible. Though obviously it's not possible to get rid of all your presuppositions and all of the biases and all that stuff that goes on in there. But that is, that is the goal. So before we jump into it all, Alex, just remind our listeners, who are you, where are you from? And why did you start thinking about this and reading this? Yeah, thank you. Um, Jordan, Brandon, happy to be on the show again. Um, I, uh, I'm a pastor in uh, Winston-Salem, North Carolina. I pastor Emanuel Church. We're about four years old or nearly four years old. And um, I am, I'm in the sweet spot. I love the calling that God has given to me to shepherd the flock here and to preach the Bible. And I hope to do it till I die. Uh, married to Jenna, we have three little kids, three and under. And uh, so that keeps us busy. Uh, as you mentioned, did my doctorate at Southeastern Seminary and uh, studied the social ministries and the evangelical activism of uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who I imagine, I mean, I think Spurgeon's still on the cover of y'all's, uh, your podcast, so your listeners hopefully are familiar. Uh, he is. And uh, and that was a very fruitful study. I love, and I, I still do work in Spurgeon now after the doctorate and working on some projects there. And um, that got me uh, studying uh, Spurgeon in his context. There emerges in the latter 19th century uh, a group of uh, influential, well, it's not just Baptists, but uh, Congregationalists and others, uh, Anglicans as well, who are pioneering what might be called Christian socialism, at least in, in Britain. So did a lot of work there, study there. But also um, my interest in the, the intersection of uh, race and theology and evangelical belief, also race and economics, began when I was actually in my undergrad at Clemson University, uh, though I had always planned on going pursuing pastoral training after undergrad. I did my undergraduate degree in finance with a concentration in economics and began to study the intersection of economics and race. That was a particular interest of mine. So was reading particularly conservative economists like Milton Friedman and Thomas Sowell and others. That's when I was first introduced to them. So the last 10 to 15 years, this has been just a kind of a side project and a matter of special interest to me. And then, of course, like many others, began to observe in in kind of big tent evangelical groups a lot of dialogue about race um, and uh, uh, develop my own perspectives on those things, was trying to listen to different voices and try to just uh, take in all that was being said and taught. And um, as with anybody, there were certain uh, speakers and authors that over time I eventually began to identify with more than others. but obviously, this is one of the major hot topics of our day and the wider culture, whether it's critical race theory. And at least at the time of recording this episode, it's in the headlines almost every day, whether it's you know, governors, you know, passing, you know, executive orders about whether it can be taught in schools or pundits going back and forth about it. Um, although, again, at the time of this recording, there was a, a pleasant um, 
bit of bipartisanship. I think it was a week ago. You had Tim Scott and Kamala Harris uh, both on record saying that they do not think America is a racist country. And I thought, wow, you know, here's here's uh, two people from very different perspectives, but at least agreeing on that, which was nice. Um, so anyway, that all of those things contribute to my interest on these issues and have been endeavoring to read extensively in critical race theory um, yeah. and other areas like that. That's good. And, and I just want to remind our listeners, we try not to do hot topics or like hot takes. That's the thing. Not yeah. hot topics, hot takes. We do hot topics. We got Doctrine of God stuff, which I think is pretty, pretty hot right now. Yeah. Um, but we try not to do hot takes. So just know that we've done a ton of reading to get prepared for this. And I, I think hopefully this is not viewed as some hot take on it. I really do think... You can't avoid this. I think it's been clear. I thought it would blow over. I don't know personally, like years ago. <laughs> yeah, it hasn't so gone clear, anywhere. Clearly, I am not the person to make <laughs> predictive prophecies of any sort. Mm. Um, so I, I do think people need to think about the topic. Whatever you think, you do need to engage it. So well, it, it might encourage you, Jordan. I plan to only bring the most lukewarm of takes. That's about as hot as I'll get. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so before we started recording we kind of as the three of us were discussing this and, and just for the listeners i've probably done the least of amount of re- amount of reading at least in the very recent past uh on this topic so i'll be doing more question asking uh today but um we we kind of discussed breaking this up into three different sections the first section on defining what race and racism is and maybe some different perspectives uh on that from mlk and some other um writers that are um active today and then is there racism? And if so, what kind? And then the third, um, how do we deal uh, with this problem? So with all that said, let's back up to the first one. Um, Alex, unpack for us some some different definitions of of what race and racism is. Um, Maybe you can define that from, you know, um, MLK's perspective or Mm -hmm. from, um, you know, is is racism just an individual sin? Is there Mm -hmm. such thing as systemic racism? If so, how should we be defining uh, systemic in there? So just help us understand um, some of the some of the terms behind this discussion. Yeah, well, race and racism uh, are going to be defined in different ways by different groups. uh, And the two terms themselves are not synonymous. So race uh, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting. I think this is an area of happy agreement between all parties. I think, uh, evangelical Christians who believe the Bible, uh, 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 sound historians, uh, Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement, uh, other leaders in that movement and critical race theorists will all say very similar things about race. And that is that race, as we think about it today is really largely a social construct. Um, so, so uh, historians and sociologists and anthropologists have um, uh, pretty well established that race as a category, the idea of there being multiple races, does not really emerge until maybe the 16th or 17th century. Mm-hmm. And very sadly, uh, it emerges in part to uh, both introduce and maintain some kind of racial hierarchy. The idea that there's a difference between different ethnicities in terms of, of their actual race um, so, of course, we understand from the Bible that I think, as Paul says in Acts 17, maybe uh, that that God is formed from one blood, uh, all peoples, all nations. Uh, we understand there is but one race, and that's the human race, um, uh, of course, uh, uh, created in God's image, fallen in Adam, 
and uh, and can be redeemed in Jesus Christ. It would be interesting to debate. Some Christians would argue, and, and, and maybe I even would argue to some degree, there is in the church a new race being made. Uh, Peter seems to use that language in 1 Peter 2. But for all intents and purposes, we don't we, we acknowledge that there is only one race. It's the human race. Um, we're all dead in Adam. We all come from him. And um, well, the critical race theorists say that, that that same thing as well, not from the Bible standpoint, but they will acknowledge race is a social construct and really has no anthropological or sociological significance. Um, so that would, yeah. be, that would be for race. That's good. That's helpful. So race across the board, everybody's saying it's a social construct. It's not biological or something like that, right. which right. social construct, I think, does not mean it's not real. Yes, that's right. Uh, so it's not oh, and, that's not part of reality in some way. Yes, and and, and just as uh, I mean, I mean, culture is socially constructed, and culture is very real and has major uh, significance. Um, similarly, if you do develop something like a racial hierarchy, that has tremendous implications for how different ethnic groups are perceived and and and, and what opportunities and advantages and disadvantages they have now racism is a much more colorful question how these different well no pun intended but uh the, the issue of racism is is uh it's not uniform between folks within the civil rights camp and let's say the anti-racist movement today um so so all of us probably grew up with the definition of racism i'm not reading from anything just something like personal animus prejudice discrimination antagonism uh, based on the belief that one's race is superior to someone else's. Um, so so that is the general understanding in almost every dictionary you could read today um, and throughout history. Uh, that would be the understanding of anyone talking about racism in the most of the 1900s. Um, and that's the way Martin Luther King understood racism. But the the essence of it is personal animus, personal discrimination, a sense of ethnic superiority, um, I've heard this definition thrown around in Christian circles, and I, I very much like it. it. It's the idea of ethnic partiality. So the Bible never uses the term racism, not surprisingly, because it only acknowledges one race. Uh, certainly it acknowledges the existence of various ethnicities and peoples and nations. Um, but but you don't have racism confronted as such. What you do have confronted in the Bible again and again, which I don't think we as Christians talk about enough, is the sin of partiality. And uh, under the old covenant, the sin of partiality was a very serious sin. Often you're looking at economic partiality, being partial toward different economic groups. Um, but you could be partial on all kinds of lines and, and being partial in terms of ethnicity, I think, is the essence of racism. So you might think of James 2, where there James is talking about how, how, how the saints that he's writing to were being partial to the rich man when he walks in. I'm paraphrasing, obviously, but they give him a seat down at the front. When the poor man walks in, he's he's toward the back in the corner. And and James will say, I think, in chapter five, that invites the wrath of God and the judgment of God. Uh, Israel, under the old covenant, if you read the prophets, the sin of partiality was one of the main reasons uh, they were they were judged. Um, it's just a, a egregious offense in God's eyes. But um, racism is essentially ethnic partiality. Uh, now, now uh, coming out of the civil rights movement, um, you begin to have more conversation about this idea of systemic racism or institutional racism. I think Stokely Carmichael in his book, Black Power, may even be the one who uh, coined the phrase institutional racism. And it was the idea that racism isn't just uh, uh, something that takes place between individual and individual. 
But that idea of personal animus and prejudice, when it is introduced into an institution or a system, is then magnified uh, as, as, as sort of permeating and affecting that whole system. So obvious examples of systemic racism from that standpoint would be uh, slavery, uh, Jim Crow laws in the South, uh, the whole Plessy versus Ferguson, 1896, separate but equal doctrine. Um, which still you have racial animus and discrimination at the heart of those laws, but it's now projected on institutional or systemic scale. But but what's important to recognize is the definition MLK was working with when he would think about systemic racism was still that issue of, of animus and discrimination, of, mm-hmm. of prejudice that was codified in the law or was part of policy or or or, or what have you. It was concrete. Yes, and it, it had to do with discrete attitudes and actions and dispositions uh, that maybe were hard to actually uncover, but were still nonetheless there. They were discriminatory in their, their, their essence. Now, the, that needs to be distinguished in a major way from the typical understanding of systemic or institutional racism that's used by critical race theorists. It's not like there's, there's a, a, a one definition I can point to to say this is the mutually agreed upon definition of all critical race theorists. But if you read in their work, and certainly if you read in sort of the pop theorists like, like Ibram X. Kendi and Robin D'Angelo, um, their understanding of systemic racism is going to be something along the lines of uh, any system or institution that produces disparate outcome along ethnic lines. Okay, so, so, so with that definition, now we're not really dealing much with inputs. So uh, Eduardo Benia Silva, professor uh, at uh, Duke. He wrote a book called Racism Without Racists, and he talks about colorblind racism, and he talks about this idea that you don't actually have to have any personal prejudice or animus against someone of a different race or ethnicity um, in order to contribute to racism, Um, because racism is systemic. It's institutional. It's not really, we got to get out of this way of thinking that racism is primarily, well, I don't like Jews, or I don't like people with different skin color than me or something like that. It is any system or institution that is producing disparate outcome. So you might think of a university that either in their enrollment or in their graduations is graduating a disproportionately high number of Asian Americans or a disproportionately low number of African Americans. Um, you, you, you might think of uh, uh, companies and their, their hiring numbers and, and, and uh, uh, how many people are hired of a particular demographic. Um, Again, the issue is not now personal animus at all. It's disparate outcome. Okay, that's what makes something racist. And Ibram X. Kendi in his book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, states this as as baldly as I just stated it, that he'll even say what what we want in institutions, whether it's hiring, whether it's uh, the arenas of power like politics or whatever, we want to have basically mirrored in those institutions the ethnic makeup of the country. So if the country is 13% African-American, you ought to have 13% African-Americans working for your company or reflected in your enrollment or in in politics or occupying uh, positions in the criminal justice system. Um, So by this definition, even though these are not the examples regularly given, uh, by this definition, Harvard University would have to be systemically racist in that their incoming freshman class, I think, is something like 25% Asian-American. Um, that that would be racist. It's a disparate outcome. The numbers have to add up to one, right? Or 100%. So if there's 25% Asian Americans, then somebody somewhere is being underrepresented. By the same token, the the NBA has to be systemically racist. 
Um, I don't know that there are any Asian American players in the NBA right now. I, I don't. Is Jeremy Lin still in the NBA? I don't know. Uh, he might be in the D League or something. <laughs> that sounds about I right. I think he's still playing, but not not on a not like on a professional scale. Yeah. Top <laughs> NBA anyway. I, I I just think though, from a descriptive standpoint, the salient insight that's most important that I would want the listeners to to appreciate is that people are working with very different definitions of racism. So Robin D'Angelo will say again and again, only white people can be racist. Uh, And she'll tell people in in diversity trainings and things like that, uh, all of you white folks are racist. I'm a racist by virtue of being white. But listen, don't get offended. I'm not saying by that that you, you entertain attitudes of personal animus and discrimination against someone on the basis of their race or ethnicity. What I'm saying is you contribute by being white to a system that privileges whites over uh, black and brown people, et, et cetera. So it's always important. So people are saying, oh, this politician's racist or this company's racist. Well, what do you mean by that? Yeah. Are you talking about discrete attitudes and actions? Or are you talking about disparate outcomes um, uh, along racial lines? Yeah, that's good. And I think that's part of the challenge and the need to think clearly about these issues is because it seems everybody's using the same terms mm-hmm. with very different meanings. Yeah. I think even when you you hear the term whiteness, depending on who's talking about it, that means something very different. It may mean skin color or it may mean something that's more of an ideological, you know, invisible thing out there. A system that privileges people with white skin. Right. Yeah. Um, And then you were talking about racial equity. That does seem to be the, the more common buzzword now where it's equality of outcome is the thing that is anti-racist. Where when I read Martin Luther King Jr., now you tell me if I'm right or wrong on this, it seems that he, his goal in fighting racism is more freedom and dignity and equality of opportunity. So he would be more racial equality rather than equity. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. He he frequently speaks of equality of opportunity as the goal, and it does not seem his goal is absolute equity of outcome for racial groups. If you read, yeah, you'll see this in MLK, and you'll see it in later economists and theorists like Thomas Sowell. Um, we live in a world that produces all kinds of disparities for tons of different reasons, not least of all are often the free choices that people make. So for example, uh, I, I use this example tongue in cheek in a class we did at our church, but my older brother uh, is a civil engineer and um, and I'm a pastor. Uh, we're both believers, uh, but those jobs that we have pursued were the result of free choices and a representation of our own feelings about our gifts and what we wanted to do and what others were telling us about, you know. Um, but because of our chosen career paths, if you will, there is a tremendous disparity in terms of income between my older brother and myself. And there's a disparity in terms of education. I have a PhD. He doesn't, you know, well, we grew up in the exact same home, the exact same inputs in terms of parental care and all of that. But even within the same family, you're seeing disparity produced. Why would we expect uh, different ethnic groups, different cultural groups? Why would we, I think the more you read on these issues in economics, sociology, anthropology, you come to see disparity maybe as normal. Um, more so than an aberration, but maybe now I'm being too prescriptive and not descriptive. <laughs> Again, when you if you're trying to assess where is the debate happening now, yeah. uh, it, it I think in part is happening between those who think who want to attribute disparity of outcome to things other than race. Mm-hmm. 
So, so that's the big question. Ibram Kendi would say in his book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, there can be no other factor. Disparity in outcome can only be the result of, of racism. Um, someone like, like a Thomas Sowell or a Glenn Lowry or John McWhorter would want to say, no, disparity in outcome is most often influenced by, by inputs. It could be a, a function of culture. It could be a, culture, a, a function of uh, yeah, free choices. It could be a, a function of all kinds of things. And that's a, that's a debate a lot of people should have and think through very carefully to what are we attributing these different outcomes across ethnic and, and racial lines? That's that's the question I think that needs to be studied carefully. Yeah. And, and so we have these. It seems to me that, you know, we have different answers to the question, what is racism? Then those different answers are going to produce different answers to the questions. Well, where do we see racism today? Um, so maybe we can, we can pivot there. Um, Cause I don't think anyone wants to say racism doesn't exist at all, period. No, no matter no, what you right. say is racism, right? Yeah. I, I don't hear anybody saying that. Okay. Yeah. And I don't even, and, and some people are saying this, but I don't think the three of us would say this. Um, some folks may say that, that race, that systemic racism doesn't exist or, or, um, or even even hasn't existed in the mm. pretty recent past, but but the the issue is going to be um, can we give tangible examples of those uh, of systemic racism rather than just talking about it as this abstract concept that we can never really put our finger on where it is. So maybe we can we can talk about that a little bit. Like, yeah. what are some possible examples of systemic racism? I mean, you touched on this earlier, obviously with examples like slavery and Jim Crow but maybe some other examples of systemic racism um, either today or just say in the last 50 years, I don't know, just to put a, a, a timer on it since, since uh, Jim Crow ended, but um, to help just orient ourselves on what are, what are these examples and, and who is going to say, yes, that's systemic racism. And then who may say, yeah. well, no, I think we have a better way of describing what's going on there. And yeah. To add to that question, Alex, I think it does seem that there are differing opinions on just what systemic racism is. Again, we've made a distinction between this individual racial animus of racism and the systemic racism. But I think even in systemic racism, there's different ways to understand that, which causes even more problems. And that's a distinction yeah. I, I intended to make that I want to make a little more clearly. The, the folks in the civil rights movement talked about systemic and institutional racism. Right. I just think what they were talking about should be distinguished from the kind of systemic racism talked about today. Yeah. What they were talking about was laws and policies and companies and schools that would the, the personal animus was still at the core of those policies and laws and things like that. Prejudice, discrimination. Whereas the way the term is often used today, it's saying there could be it's it's possible that there is no, you know, overt uh, attitudes or, or even or, intentional, right? Yeah. That, that's why I say that book racism without racist by Benia Silva is, is a good place to illustrate that Robin D'Angelo will say a similar thing in, in white fragility. So I think those, so even when people say, and this is to your point, Brandon, when they say systemic racism exists today, or this is an instance of systemic racism, you have to ask them now, what do you mean when you say that you're saying racists formed those laws in, in, in terms of they were discriminating against people of a different background or ethnicity? Or are you saying, no, no one, I'm not saying anybody had those sorts of thoughts or attitudes, 
But what happened is it produced an outcome that is disparate along racial lines. Um, it's privileging one group over another, whether or not anyone ever intended that. My personal opinion would be if 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 you're talking about the latter definition there, every, everything is racist. I mean, there's disparity of outcome in every single sports league. There's disparity of outcome in every single school and university. There's disparity of outcome. There's uh, my own church. I don't. We we have um, uh, a a pleasant uh, diversity in our church, but I doubt it perfectly reflects the ethnic demographics of my community. And if that's the standard for whether or not an institution is racist, then we would be racist by that that standard, despite not having any personal animus against any ethnicity. So so by that latter standard, you can just see it, it opens the door to many more institutions and systems being regarded as racist. Um, if there are more of one group uh, caught up in the criminal justice system or who are incarcerated or are the object of police engagements or something like that, um, you know, if it's just a matter of it being, um, you know, one group being overrepresented or underrepresented in terms of their actual presence in the population, all kinds of things then qualify as systemic racism. If you're saying no, actually, in the constitution and formation of a particular law, there would have to be racial bias or animus. In the formation and constitution of particular policy uh, or protocol, there'd have to be evidence of actual systemic or actual racial animus and hatred and discrimination. Then the number of institutions and systems that are indicted under that definition, are they going to be far less? Mm-hmm. And Can, and, you, can you give us some, and this is where we, I guess, are going to get prescriptive, but... Yeah. Could you give us some examples of things that that you would think would fall under that that category that we're just starting to speak about now? Yeah, well, my my position would be an unpopular position, guys, and um, I I understand it would not be consistent with uh, the popular narrative on race. I think that actually systemic racism and institutional racism, according to that first definition, uh, is very hard to find today. I'm not saying it's not present. I'm, I'm talking about America broadly. Yeah. Obviously, in many other countries, there is overt racism written into the laws. But if we're talking about laws and policies written with the intent to discriminate against whether it's black and brown people or Asian Americans or what have you, um, I think it's very hard to find systems and institutions where you can actually prove that. And I, I would just argue that the spirit of the age is such that if you did find an institution that actually formulated their policies or their protocols or their laws on that basis, they would be immediately prosecuted in courts of law and would certainly be scrutinized in the court of public opinion. Um, so, but, but I, I, let me, let me offer up an example, guys, that I think illustrates the interplay between these two definitions, a very common sort of smoking gun example of, Hey, look, systemic racism would be the disparity between uh, the penalties assigned to crack and cocaine, or excuse me, crack and powder cocaine, two different forms of cocaine uh, during the war on crime and the war on drugs in the 70s and 80s, government took a much more uh, uh, severe stance toward drug offenses. And um, the people frequently cite what was originally a 100 to one disparity in how crack and and powder cocaine were, were penalized. Crack, of course, I say, of course, like I've done crack, which I've not done, but crack is, you can, you can smoke crack cocaine. 
you snort powder cocaine, they're taken differently and they're used by, uh, uh, they, they tend to fall in their use along racial lines. So co powder cocaine would be more prevalent and popular among whites. Uh, it's much more expensive, um, party drug kind of thing. Uh, crack would be uh, used in, in, in more minority communities, especially African-American communities. And crack cocaine under these laws was punished, from what I understand, uh, at, at, a, at a, a disparate rate of 100 to 1 uh, when you compare it to powder cocaine. Now, in 2006 or seven, that was changed. The disparity was reduced to 18 to 1, um, but still a very wide disparity. Well, according to the latter definition of systemic racism that sees racism as being any policy institution system that produces disparate outcome, there's no question those would then be rendered racist laws. If you, if, if you use the older, more traditional definition that those laws had to be, basically, according to the older definition, the formation of those laws would have had to have been done with discrete personal racial animus against a particular group. So this would have been white politicians trying to subjugate and subdue black populations by punishing this drug more prominent in their communities at a greater rate. Uh, well, if you study the history of those laws, uh, the stricter penalties and punishments assigned to crack cocaine were directly the result of demands in black communities. Uh, think black town hall meetings in different inner city communities uh, got the almost universal support of the newly formed Congressional Black Caucus. Uh, I think under Lyndon Johnson, uh, black lawmakers championed uh, harsher penalties against crack cocaine because of the crack epidemic that was believed to be ravaging African-American communities. So the concern was we need to get crack out of the inner cities because it is disparately harming minority communities. Uh, whites don't use crack as much and it's not having the same effect in white communities, but it's ravaging black communities. And the simple sort of common sense logic was, well, if we penalize this drug at a very severe rate, it will introduce a disincentive to using this drug. Which makes sense to me, you know. Yeah. In hindsight, that's not what happened, you know. But the, but as you can see, if, if if that's your understanding of the history of it all, well, there was no personal animus or effort to discriminate or subdue or subjugate a particular class. There was actually an effort on the part of lawmakers to to this was this is going to be a source of black uplift, you know. Mm -hmm. Well, I think making that 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 distinction is very important. I'm not saying. Well, I'll just say I'm not a fan of the disparity. I think it should be changed. You know, I'm not a fan of these laws at all. But you can see a proper understanding of the history of it all would definitely mitigate against the highly simplistic notion that, well, this was just a, a way to keep African-Americans down. It, it patently was not. It was championed by the black community and black lawmakers. Um, but that is an illustration of a law that has had a really terrible impact on minority communities. That would be rendered systemically racist according to one definition and not according to another definition. I think it reminds me of, I mean, maybe a little prescriptive, but part of my own fear and challenge with a lot of the, the critical race theory is it's almost over-universalizing particular ideas to where it's forgetting all of the complexities that go on in life. To me, there's really not a lot of overarching narratives that I can apply to every single context and say, this is going to be true in this scenario, regardless of all the other factors. It seems to me the only true universal narrative that I can be sure and confident it's going to be apply is, you know, the gospel, sin, yes. grace, redemption, yes. those types of things. Well said. 
that's the only thing that's going to be universal. So I think that is part of the challenge, but I don't think that's to deny that it's possible for systemic racism to be there, but depend, I guess, depending on what type you, you're Certainly. talking about, I think Delgado and others talk about how racism is embedded in our thought and processes and social structures. So I guess you can take that in two ways. You can take that as it's a subconscious thing. So it's not attempting to like intentionally promote racism, but subconsciously they're doing it. So that's, I guess, one category. And then the other category is it's so embedded that, and they are legit trying to push it. And I think what you kind of said is that seems to lack statistical data. So maybe it is that um, Candy and others are wanting to say, well, it's, it's subconscious. I mean, that seems to be probably the majority opinion. I don't have a clear sense of what they're, everybody's talking about but i think that's the idea that they're getting at it right i think i think that's absolutely right and and especially that racism can be cloaked behind particular cultural standards okay okay uh like um colorblindness meritocracy uh, other kind of classical liberal principles that these things are so ingrained in the culture this is that whole idea if you see people on twitter talking about antonio gramsci and cultural hegemony that's kind of the idea that there are these cultural standards that have seep through society that are put in place by the powerful, let's say, or the majority or something like that, that actually privilege one group and disadvantage another and can have the effect of changing the way we look at people and think about people. I think, and and I just want to be clear. I do think there is systemic racism, according to both definitions in Mm. in the world. There has been clear evidence to show, especially in the nineties. And even since then that there were police departments that where there was clear evidence brought against police departments, that there was systemic racism in those police departments. That's probably less today, but I I think there are certainly systems out there. All I'm saying is it would appear to me that according to that traditional definition of racism, you're going to have a harder time supplying examples of systems and institutions that are actually racist. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. According to the CRT definition, it would be much broader. Right. And that's part of the, I think the confusion that at least that I've witnessed is uh, people will pr- say, hey, this is systemic racism, and it's kind of divorced from CRT. It's not a universal thing. It's just, it's really prevalent, maybe. And I think a lot of evangelicals will say, well, clearly institutions and systems can be infected with sin mm-hmm. and have these types of things. So yeah, of course, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to latch onto that idea. And then you have the converse people who are like, I don't like CRT and anything it says, therefore I'm going to reject outright the idea of systemic racism. I think both of those have, uh, are, are problematic and they're not actually following critical race theory, number one, or the older stuff. Okay. okay yeah. And I just want to nuance that a little bit because uh, I, I do hear this often. Well, you know, we're Christians. We believe in, in fallen human nature. We yeah. believe in sin. Why would it be so hard to believe that the sins that we have in our hearts would be introduced into the systems we produce and the institutions we right. create and all of that? And on a basic level, that's certainly true, right? But yeah. but I, I do think there's a difference between, you know, I don't think actually most people are racist in their hearts. You know, I, I, I'm speaking of my, let's just say my circle of, of friends. I don't think they are racist. I also think uh, all of them, as far as I know, are not rapists, and they're not murderers in the sense of committing those kinds of actions. So I just think we have to recognize to say an institution is systemically racist and just say, well, we're all sinners, right? You know, 
Well, we, we, I don't think we'd want to say an institution is systemically rapist or systemically murdering if indeed that's not the case. So I just think, yeah, yeah of course, it's a truism. It's a tautology that that our sin influences all of our systems and institutions. But there are some sins that that we don't routinely commit or are implicated in uh, that if we're going to say racism or sexism or greed or whatever is present in the system or institution itself, we should be able to supply evidence for that. Mm-hmm. And it's not a it's not a a way to dodge accountability to require that evidence because it's a very serious charge um, to accuse someone of, of actual racism because it is such a yeah. heinous sin. But again, I guess I, I think of somebody like D'Angelo, white privilege and white mm-hmm. fragility and everything seems that there's a, it's almost a subconscious racism that you have. And I think, you know, the first time I probably heard about this, I, I think back to my, my own experience. I think at the, at the time I was working during the summer in East St. Louis, which if you're familiar with East St. Louis, it, it's a predominantly black area, predominantly low socioeconomic status, predominantly um, lots of drugs. Um, it's just, it's, it's not a good area. Uh, from any typical sta- like economic standard, any of those standards, uh, it's falling below for various reasons. And I think to myself that, you know, they give all these examples. I'm like, yeah, I'm driving through that neighborhood uh, where I'm on my way to work. and I don't want to stop at stop signs. And when I see people, I want to lock the door. Mm-hmm. And is that because I, I have some subconscious racism in my heart? Because, well, I see black person on the corner and I lock my door. Well, at the time, I think, yeah, that seems like a sufficient explanation, um, and it maps on to what D'Angelo's and others are saying. But then I start thinking, well, I don't do that in other neighborhoods when there's mm-hmm. a black person mm-hmm. on the corner. Mm-hmm. It, it seems to be that there are other factors that were missing from the conversation, right? Which yeah. critical race theory, I guess, as you've described, seems to locate the problem um, in one or two things where it's not allowing class and other factors to have much class, say. Is that right? Uh, yeah, class, culture, all kinds of things. And again, I think when you study these issues out more, I'm talking from the standpoint of economics and sociology and the law, um, you, you come to appreciate more and more disparities in outcomes and, and things like that are are never, almost never, um, monocausal. You know, they're, they're, they're typically multivariate. They're going to be many different things contributing uh, uh, to why the situation is the way that it is. And it could be reductionistic to just try to take a silver bullet answer. Well, it's, it's just racism or it's just culture or it's just uh, personal responsibility and work ethic. You know, um, you know, I, I think that we have to be more nuanced in in our our analysis of statistics and data and the things that we're seeing and, and also our experiences as well. Yeah. It's fun. I just looked, I've got some notes here. D'Angelo, I guess she says racism is omnipresent and embedded and pervades every vestige of a reality. Yeah. It's more than discrete individual intentional malicious actions. Mm-hmm. And it, that does seem to be a common theme when I was reading critical race theory is racism is fundamentally a problem about policies and not people. It's not really an individual thing. Yeah. I, they seem to bucket that in just, well, that's just racial discrimination. That's not racism. Yeah. Ibram X. Kendi makes that point again and again in his book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. We're dealing with a matter of policy. And they'll go as far as to say, if you try to attribute differences in outcomes for groups to anything other than policy, you know, 
racist policy, presumably. Uh, that's racist behavior. And this would yeah. be one of the big areas where the anti-racist movement that Ibram Kendi uh, is is probably the spokes the most prominent spokesperson for would depart in a major way from the legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King. Yeah. Um, Martin Luther King would distribute would would attribute disparities in outcomes to all kinds of things. He he frequently is addressing African Americans about cultural issues. It's not uncommon for him to say, "Look, here's the Jews. They have been an oppressed group." yet they have thrived and succeeded. We need to be more like the Jews in terms of having intact families and 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 work ethic and all of that. To Ibram X. Kendi, he would view Martin Luther King as an assimilationist racist and a cultural racist. Uh, Kendi would believe that any cultural standards at all, viewing one cultural standard better than another, is the essence of cultural racism, whereas MLK was frequently advocating for particular cultural standards as a large part of what leads to the thriving and flourishing of, of particular groups. And I would still be in that old sort of uh, traditional group that would view Martin Luther King as, as actually advocating for something like colorblindness, yeah. um, which I know that's kind of verboten nowadays, that if you believe in colorblindness, that's, that's racist. People will try to argue that Martin Luther King himself did not believe in the colorblind ideal, but uh, I, I, I don't see any way around that. Again and again, he argues, uses the language of colorblindness up until pretty much his dying day. He's advocating for the colorblind ideal, a society in which, as he says in the I Have a Dream speech, his children will be judged not on the color of their skin, but the content of their character, where where people are treated without regard to race. Mm -hmm. That's a goal that Martin Luther King certainly has. And of course, that's not to mean that you ignore and forget diversity of race and those types of, of things. It's, he, and he, he's the one who said black is beautiful, right? I mean, yeah. he, he, he's not saying literally you're colorblind and that you don't right. see color. Um, even I think actual colorblind people can see the difference between black and white. So, so he's not saying that we don't acknowledge that ethnicity is an actual thing, yeah. but he's saying, what is the goal? The goal is to get to a point where we do not treat people on the basis. So, so race and ethnicity is not allowed to become a condition in terms of how I treat you. Yeah. Everyone is essentially, and he would speak a lot about universal human nature and how that needs to be what binds us and unites us. That's, you talked about the beloved community. Yeah. People won't be talking about white power, black power, but we'll all speak of God's mm -hmm. power and all that kind of stuff. So he's big on the image of God and man. He talks about how we need to get away from thinking about uh, 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 individuals in their specificity and human nature, rather, in its fundamentum. We all laugh. We all cry. We all have mothers and fathers. We all experience suffering. We all experience heartache. We all experience joy. Those things that unite us uh, are, are what, what are the path forward, rather than the things that might be different between groups. Which uh, another interesting thing that MLK brought up that I thought was seems to be an interesting contrast to some degree is he seemed to argue you know all the time about his nonviolence method but he has some pieces in there where he's explaining the ends never justify the means mm. Mm -hmm. and that seems to be at least as far as i read a very different method than what a critical theorist would want to say they would say well any means justifies the ends as long as you get to the ends of an equitable society mm -hmm. it, it's Mo mostly irrelevant how you get there. But it seems that Dr. King is saying something vastly different. Oh, yeah. Ibram well, e X. Kennedy will almost say exactly what you said, that discrimination in the past can only be, only be remedied by discrimination in the present. And discrimination in the present can only be remedied by discrimination in, in the future. 
but yeah, I think I think MLK is approaching this in a very different way. Yeah, I, th- I think that's what what concerns me the most uh, about a lot of the the current uh, rhetoric is what you just said that discrimination in the past has to be remedied by discrimination in the present, but there's no stopping mechanism built into this. No. So then it seems like if what you're doing um, to try to fix things is actually working, then it, we're going to reach some point where the group who is now the oppressor becomes the oppressed. So then do we just flip everything again and just continue doing this? I, and maybe someone has an answer to that. I don't say that as like a, an attempt at like a knockdown argument. I genuinely don't understand. Like if, if this is the way that we're supposed to fix these problems, then, then how we don't just continue the cycle. It it certainly does seem to be a kind of endless process of alienation. Um, And, and uh, that's going to be phrased in different ways by different theorists, but I don't see a lot in the way of solutions being, being advanced. It is a continual process of sort of atonement, um, alienation, all of that. And, and, uh, you know, in that way, that might be showing some kinship with Marxism and the Marxist theory of alienation. He believed that, that class conflict and the social binary of oppressor and oppressed alienation between, uh, uh, those two groups was going to be perpetual. It's the basis and foundation of history. I don't know to what degree that's actually would represent the thinking of, of critical race theorists, but it would be present in Marx. Yeah. So I do want to spend a little bit of time on con- comparing and contrasting theories on what do we do about racism? Because I think across the board, everybody says racism is bad, but it seems like there's obviously some very different solutions to the problem here. At least from my vantage point, my limited reading it seems that critical race theory would lean more down on solution is going to be found in money and power. Mm-hmm. Whereas, uh, maybe for a typical standard Christian approach is going to say, well, the, the solution is the gospel and love. Mm-hmm. Um, can the, I mean, is that a, a legitimate way to compare contrast some different visions of that? That's my read. I think you're exactly right. I think that the, the solution for the critical race theorists is, is a redistribution of power along ethnic lines. And um, it, it is largely bound up with who has power, who has resources, who has influence, all those kinds of things. Um, it just seems to me a Christian would have a completely different different take. Um, that for the Christian, uh, you know, we're interested in heart change. We're interested in, in new birth, in reconciliation between God and man, and thereby reconciliation between disparate peoples. I think of Ephesians 2 as the classic text. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I tend to think the divide between Jews and Greeks was not primarily or Jews and Gentiles was primarily a racial divide, but really a, a cultural and religious one. And I think the lesson to be learned from Ephesians 2 is that if these two groups, Jews and Gentiles, could be reconciled through the blood of Christ and be made one new humanity in Christ Jesus, any two groups can be reconciled. I think that's the distinctly Christian method. Through the blood of Jesus, people from d- across ethnic lines, economic lines, gender lines, what have you, can be one in Christ. Uh, and I think that's the distinctly Christian solution that we have to offer. I also think it's just important to say, if, if we have a proper doctrine of sin, um, I think there should just be a, a tone of realism introduced in the, 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 the conversation that we live in a Titus 3-3 world where, where we're told that apart from Christ, we are hated by others and hating one another. 
Like that's sort of sort of man's default. So certainly to have this idea that one day we're going to free the world of racism, I don't know. I mean, my my uh, my end times views are not that post millennial um, <laughs> to think that we might get to that point. I think rather we should recognize in the world there is going to continue to be alienation and hostility. That's not to dull our efforts to change the world and to improve the world. Right. But we should expect that's that's sort of the background music that we live in. What what I'm most excited about as a Christian pastor is building a community in my local church that stands as a bright and shining light against the backdrop of such division and alienation, where, where people of different ethnicities and backgrounds and cultures are, are, are one in Jesus Christ. And these different group identities seem to sort of diminish in their significance as we embrace this new group identity that sort of prevails above all and indeed relativizes our other group identities. Um, being one as a citizen of the kingdom of God and the new humanity and the church that Jesus Christ is forming. That allows me to be endlessly optimistic and excited. And that leads me to pour my energies into my church and my zeal into my church uh, in, 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 in ways unspeakable. I mean, that is something I can get really excited about. When I look to the world, I don't see, I don't see great solutions that are forthcoming. And I don't see racism going away anytime soon, but I do see new communities of God's people being born of him all over the world. And they are reflecting this kind of unity and harmony that is created and generated by the spirit of God uh, mm-hmm. under the glory of the Lord Jesus. Yeah, I, th- I think something that, and what, just to make sure people are not hearing you say something that I, I know you're not saying, but I know, you know, there's this common um, debate back and forth, you know, on, I've just preached the gospel, and and that's not what you're saying. But I do think what you're saying is that we can't lose the the centrality of the gospel as as the people of God. You know, um, it's not yeah, it's not I, enough I think, to. I think that's fair. Yeah, it's not enough to just say the gospel over and over and then pretend like uh, injustices are, are are going to stop. You know, as you said already, um, you know, we should fight uh, for justice and and be a, a people who deeply care about justice. Yeah, but. But what I think some of the more um, modern day, like, you know, I'm talking like, you know, the last 10, 20 years remedies um, that have really gained a lot of steam, what they seem to to do is they they undermine some of the most fundamental categories that that we have in place as, as Christians to where the gospel becomes very fuzzy um, and the law gospel distinction gets gets lost. And, and there's just all kinds of. Of, of problems that come from that. So, so what I don't hear you saying is, is just preach the gospel. What I do hear you saying is, is let's, let's keep the gospel um, central as the people of God. Is there, is that a fair reading of what I, you're getting at? I, I think that's fair. What, what I would probably want to say is I'm for the gospel being consistently preached and applied. Yeah. If that is done faithfully. That brings an end to racism in a particular community. If the gospel yeah. is faithfully preached and applied, those, those, Brothers and sisters in in that, that James was writing to, they were not consistently applying the gospel when they were showing partiality toward the rich. Um, we are not being faithful to the gospel. Uh, we are not consistently applying and working out the implications of the gospel if we tolerate racism in our midst. Mm-hmm. So that's 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 more what I'm saying. I'm definitely not saying we'll just just give the basic, you know, First Corinthians fifteen one through seven message again and again. Right. I keep saying those same words like some kind of magic incantation that's going to get rid of racism. No, I mean then do do part two of the Great Commission, 
teach the Lord's people all that Jesus has commanded. Apply the gospel and the good news and the word of God faithfully yeah. in your local churches. But I guess what I'm just saying is as a Christian pastor, I am i don't view my primary responsibility uh, being in the realm of political activism in the wider yeah. world. That that's, that's so much more gnarly and difficult a subject. It and is. It, it is discouraging and dark to me. The church is bright and optimistic to me. I'm, yeah. I'm endlessly hopeful about what God is doing in his church. One, one thing I wanted, um, I wanted to make sure we, we did before we finished up and, and Jordan, if you, if you want to talk about some other stuff before we wrap up, but I'm just going to throw this in here. Um, you know, some recommend recommended resources that, that might be good for folks. I had a few things that I jotted down, um, that I thought may be helpful on, on these issues of race, um, things that I've read, um, or listened to. The first one is, um, Coleman Hughes gave a talk, uh, at Harvard on, um, the case for colorblindness. So if mm-hmm. you want to get, um, somebody who's, who's, who's a, a young man, um, who's, you know, active and thinking right now, um, his take on colorblindness. And again, he's not saying, um, you don't see color. That's not what he means. He's talking about a much more uh, fundamental ideal of, of colorblindness, not something as surface level as saying, I don't see color. So that would be a good place to go. Um, a book uh, that I really love uh, is um, John Perkins' autobiography, um, Let Justice Roll Down. I think he wrote that originally um, in the late 1970s, but there's a newer um, edition of it out. That book will, um, you will you will weep through a, a lot of it, um, just reading about a lot of the things that he faced. Um, but it, he is just such a humble man um, in, in the way that he writes and talks about God's grace in his life and, and how that's impacted, um, you know, his interactions with his, his white brothers. And, and uh, so it's a really good book. Uh, another book by, by Perkins is uh, One Blood. That's a, a newer book um, that I thought was really good. Uh, a book from about 15 years ago. So it's a little dated Beyond Racial Gridlock um, by George Yancey. I thought that was tremendously helpful. And uh, a, a new book um, that we're actually going through with some folks at church uh, by Thaddeus Williams, uh, Confronting Injustice Without Compromising Truth. I think that book sh- strikes a pretty good balance. Uh, he seems to be uh, pretty fair-minded um, in how he sets out the issues. Um, so I think that's, a, a, a for, for the church specifically, I think that's a really good book uh, to go through. So those are just some of my thoughts on resources. I don't know what you guys have on things you think are, are useful. Yeah, I, I, I would. Uh, I, I think that's a great list, Brandon, uh, especially that book in Funding Injustice Without Compromising Truth. Excellently researched, um, accessible, warm. Uh, I think uh, Thaddeus Williams makes a good faith effort to try to uh, both set forth uh, his own views and his understanding of the scriptures and also the views of people who would have I think opposing viewpoints. So that that has been the number one book I've recommended to folks who want to think more carefully about race, social justice, and and all of that. Um, other other writers, now, now these aren't Christian individuals, but if you want to think about race from a sociological or economic perspective, um, I, I've been very helped by the writings of Thomas Sowell. Read probably half of his corpus. Uh, he has a book called Disparities and Discrimination. Um, which deals with some of these questions. You could even see in the title, how do we think about disparities that we see in the world? He has an excellent book called Intellectuals and Race. Uh, Another book called, uh, I think it's Black Rednecks and White Liberals. Uh, So Thomas Sowell, S-O-W-E-L-L, grew up in Harlem, 
um, was a Marxist for a number of years, um, uh, became you know more conservative on on race and economic issues. Um, has taught most of his career at Stanford, but he's he's been very helpful. Um, so yeah, he would be he'd be one of the big ones I'd recommend if you want to read outside of the Christian world and think more from a sociological or economic standpoint. What one one other Christian name I'll mention, and he's not written a book on this, but primarily articles. I've been really helped by the writing of Kevin DeYoung lately. Um, he's just written a number of really solid articles that I think are probably moving Christians in the right direction in terms of thinking more carefully about race and racism from a Christian standpoint and trying to improve the dialogue, kind of lower the guns a little bit, turn the temperature down. And he just brings kind of a calm and cool voice. I'm sure there's lots of people who disagree with him, but I see him as a guy who's trying to think more carefully about this and is actually maybe showing us a way forward. Um, so he'd be someone I recommend. Just George Kevin DeYoung, his articles, his blog, Race and Racism. You'll probably find good stuff. That's something that's really, uh, you know, what you said there about, you know, turning the temperature down or putting the guns down or, or whatever. Like, you know, that's we, we've just gotten to a place. And this is what grieves me the most, I think, is where we're just, um, you know, our our default posture um, is to be dismissive or um, or to mock those who are coming from a, a different perspective from us on these issues, especially. I mean, we shouldn't do that anyway, but especially towards our brothers and sisters. And it's just yeah. like, man, I mean, I don't know. It, it, we, we all need to do better on that. And so I, that's one thing that I hope, at least from this conversation, you know, that even if you've been listening to this and you think, you know, a few of the questions or the prescriptions that we have offered in this, you totally disagree with it, that you appreciate that, that we are coming at this from, you know, a, a, a good faith perspective that we, you know, want to, um, see the best in others and, and hope the best about others um, and, and try to be as charitable as possible. So um, I just want to make sure I said that before we closed up. Yeah, that's right, Brandon. And I think, I mean, me even, I, you know, I'm reading critical race theory. I'm trying to say, okay, do I actually think it's wrong? Uh, are there positives in here? And I think there are some positives that you can glean from it. Um, just to be, to be frank. I mean, I think that they, the power of storytelling is something that they emphasize. And I think everybody can agree that the power of storytelling is something that is a useful thing in all walks of life that you should utilize. Um, I think, I, and I do think that them emphasizing that racism is more than just an individual animus act. I mean, I think that's right. That it just the broad thesis that racism can be more than just individual. I think it, it's right to shed light on power dynamics. Now, a lot of the, edifice that they build up around it, I, I don't find helpful. A lot of the solutions I don't find helpful, but I, that doesn't mean that there can't be nuggets of truth in there. Now, I know you're going to get all the whole Resolution 9 garbage and stuff, and can it be an analytical tool, and can you find these resources elsewhere? Whatever. You guys, you can talk about that yourselves. But I think Brandon's point just about being charitable, I mean, I, one of the most powerful things I think we can do is just say, hey, I, I was wrong. I'm sorry. Um, I mean, I had to do that to Brandon like this last week when we were texting about stuff. So I, I think you should just have that posture of humility and that would help a lot of this. Now, two resources, maybe three resources or something I want to mention. Uh, number one, you mentioned DeYoung. I think somebody posted on Twitter a, a screenshot of what is the mission of the church mm. section on social justice. And I had forgot that that even existed. So I go on my shelf and I look it up. I'm like, there's no way they're talking about this. I read it. I'm like, wow, they are. And they're diagnosing, talking about some of these same issues years ago. 
So we're, so, we're doing a, a Sunday school class in our church right now on race, social justice, and the mission of the church. And the two primary texts we've gotten for folks are, are Confronting Injustice Without Compromising Truth by Thaddeus Williams and What is the Mission of the Church by DeYoung and Gilbert. And like you, I was, I was amazed at how evergreen that book is yeah. and would highly recommend folks take, take a look again at that book. Yeah, another one you may not be familiar with is called Reforming Culture uh, by Gary Stewart. It's from H&E Publishing, J.W. Alexander's Christian Approach to Social Reform. I don't think everybody's going to agree with everything that's in this uh, by a long stretch. But I do think it's very interesting to examine uh, men of the past and what their understanding of the problem is and what the solution is. And he ends up coming with you know a very individualistic educational solution, which I think— Alex, tell me if I'm right. It seems that Spurgeon has a pretty individualistic solution to the problem of racism. It seems that um, MLK would even have an individualistic solution for the the majority of part, getting people's hearts right, teaching them discernible skills and those types of things. Having a posture of love would, for the most part, solve the majority of problems, not every problem. I, I, I would see MLK as more of an activist than Spurgeon in that he, he had a larger appreciation for the power of laws, and he certainly is mm-hmm. advocating for legislative change, which is not something Spurgeon does a lot of. I mean, Spurgeon will say, we just need to get more people saved. I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm oversimplifying, you know. <laughs> um, but it, it's a reflection of their eras to some degree, the degree to which government was involved in social relief in the Victorian era was not even close to what it would have been in the 1960s and 70s in the United States. So they're, they're products of their time to some degree, but also some, some different takes theologically in terms of how they would conceive of these issues. Yeah. And I don't want this to mean that the solution is obviously individualistic. I mean, I think of myself, I'm in a Davenant reading group, Davenant Institute, and we've been reading through um, Brad Littlejohn. He's got like four or five part series on why do Protestants convert to Catholicism? And one of the things he's been diagnosing and really pushing in on is the lack of solid, strong, serious Protestant institutions. Hmm. That's not an individualistic solution necessarily, but I've been convinced that, yeah, that is a major problem for Protestants. When I think of serious, intellectual, high-powered institutions, there's not a lot on the list for Protestantism versus Catholicism, where that's helped them weather and been you know, they've been a very much a minority uh, as far as religious groups go. And yet they have, they're a bastion of intellectual success. When you think of serious intellectuals, Supreme Court, other places, they're Catholic. They're not Protestant. It's very rare to find Protestants in these places. So I do think creating and building healthy, strong institutions is something that's important and relevant to this conversation. I don't know totally what it ends up looking like. Um, on a broad scale, but, you know, in my own community, I'm just, I think we just need to think community level way more than we think national global level. Yeah. And I I would also say, again, just from the standpoint of, of a Christian pastor, I think um, the church itself is a kind of institution that God is building. It's, It's not just a bunch of individual mavericks. It is a corporate body. And, and there's something so much brighter and grander uh, that, that's meant to be seen in the church as an institution against the backdrop of sin and alienation in the world. And I, I think, I think, I mean, that's, that's a, a group identity and some group mm-hmm. dynamics I want to talk a lot more about. And um, again, that's, that's where I feel I can, I can 
in, influence, you know, in terms of being part of this thing that God is doing and God is building. And um, I think all Christians across the board should be very obviously engaged in the local church. Particular ones will be called to to minister in the wider cultural arena in terms of activism or politics and things like that, or building educational institutions. That's not every individual Christian's calling, but every individual Christian is called to that grand institution, uh, which is the Lord's Ecclesia, the Lord's yeah. Assembly, the Lord's Church. That's I think good. one one thing we can, you know, we, we haven't really mentioned Spurgeon too much, which is uh, kind of a shame, but uh, one thing we, we can <laughs> learn from him— uh, you know, is that sometimes taking, you know, wherever our, our, our conscience leads us uh, in the specific situations that we're in on, on contentious issues like this, you know, sometimes we're going to have to count the cost on taking a stand for something um, that may not be popular um, to those uh, around us. Um, and that's something that Spurgeon did um, with his stance uh, against slavery. I know that he, you know, Alex, you know all the details on this, but, you know, he, he took a stand against slavery and it really cost him uh his reputation in the american south oh, yeah. um for, got him for doing got him death threats and uh he lost all his income from sermon sales in the american south it was a big deal yeah so you know and obviously we're not spurgeon and, and the situation is totally different but whatever it is whatever you know um issue it is whether it's race or, or anything where the temperature's just so high you know there there are going to be times where you know we're going to have to with great humility, not, not beating our chest, but, you know, to stand up and, um, you know, speak to people who, you know, maybe worth, maybe it's going to cost us something, whether it be, you know, our family or friends or, or, um, others in our, in our church. But, um, we, we can't compromise on truth, um, when it comes to things that are this important. Um, you know, I, I so, um, that, I think that's a lesson we can learn from, from Spurgeon. You, you might say that, that the goal is to confront injustice without compromising truth. Maybe someone should write a book by that title or something like that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Can't, well, I, I don't think we should compromise on truth or compromise on love, right? And I think Amen. that's been the, hopefully the goal and the, the ethos of what we've been trying to communicate throughout this is we want to hold both with clenched fists. We yes. don't want to give Amen. up either of them. Amen. Um, one last recommended resource I want to give you all. I think, I mean, Somebody asked me a question after I'd read Kendi and we were texting about it, should pastors read this? And I had to think about it and think, pastors have a limited amount of time to research and study. And I, I honestly said no, because I think they should spend their time on things like reading about the doctrine of God, reading just biblical exegesis type stuff, because I think that's going to serve their people better. However, I do think that a lot of people are wanting to discuss this and want to talk about this. And if you want to counsel your church members I think you actually have to read some of the primary sources because a lot of the time it's just been, well, I saw the soundbite somewhere and, that, and I'm going to repeat this. And, you know, it's like a game of phone tag and it just becomes worse and worse and worse. And you're communicating something that's just not true. And that creates a lot of, I think, a lot of friction and tension just in this debate. So I do think it's probably useful to read some primary sources. And I think that Delgado critical race theory book, the first 50 pages is probably really helpful in my opinion. Good summary. I think that would probably be a nice little starting point if you wanted to read something just to get an idea of what they're talking about. You'd probably have a good sense of what's going on there. But th that's that's my opinion. Alex, did you have any other recommended resources no, you think are really I, good? I think if you want to read on critical race theory, that introduction by, I think it's Richard Delgado and Gene Stefancic. Um, I think it's just called Critical Race Theory and Introduction. 
I don't know when they wrote that book, but I got to believe sales for that book is exploding, um, given how much critical race theory is in the headlines. And then I think of Ibram X. Kendi as more of a, a sort of popular purveyor of some of the ideas of critical race theory. So I don't even know if he uses the word critical race theory in his book, but how to be an anti-racist. I mean, he's the big figure. He's he's the big guy, even much more so than Robin D'Angelo and uh, that book, White Fragility. Um, I think that book might be wearing in its popularity to some degree, but but Ibram X. Kendi, How to Be an Anti-Racist, the Richard Delgado book. Uh, I've mentioned already Eduardo Benia Silva's Racism Without Racists. Um, those would be some resources if you want to understand CRT better. That would be some boots on the ground kind of stuff. Good stuff. Well, I think this has been hopefully a helpful conversation, hopefully one that you all have benefited from. And we definitely appreciate everybody for tuning in. So I, every episode, you probably all know, at some point you will get a, a cameo from my, my oldest son. So he's here eating a muffin that I had left on my desk that I was going to eat. But of course, if I don't get to it, then he will. So everybody's been listening. Thanks for tuning in. This is the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. And if you have thoughts, ideas, you know, if you want to discuss this more, let us know. Hopefully we can shed more light than heat on the discussion, though yet still be clear about what we think and believe in a loving way. Anyway, thanks for tuning in. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.